You just told me a moment ago that Brother Doug Massey is going to, if it's needed, he's going to plow the the parking lot for Sunday, so there's no excuse. Sunday you can be here, and uh, praise the Lord for that. Thank you, Brother Doug. We appreciate that. That's all we love you for is that uh, bobcat that you've got. (laughs) We get our good use out of that, so we're appreciative. No, seriously, thank you for doing that. Uh, It'll make it safer, but I I am thankful for those who are able to be here tonight. We'll be in Genesis chapter number 45. Go to Genesis chapter number 45. Can you believe it's been 15 weeks in Genesis? And it probably shouldn't have been 15 weeks. This should have been like a 10-week series, but I've just kept going and going. Uh, there's just so much here that uh, I don't want to miss anything, and so we'll be in Genesis chapter number 45. And uh, last week, we covered that first section, Genesis 45, 1 through verse number 15, and then we hinted a little bit in Genesis 45, verse number 24. And uh, this week, we'll cover the latter part of Genesis chapter number 45 and verse 16 down through the end of the chapter. And then we're also going to somewhat cover all of Genesis 46. Now, Genesis 46 has a lot of genealogies and a lot of instructions, and so uh, we will just hint towards it, and we won't actually preach on it next week. We'll be in Genesis chapter number 47. Uh, I'm not saying it's not important, but it's just, again, it's covering a lot of the genealogies and so forth, and some of this journey that uh, Jacob and his family is going to uh, 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 go through, some of the things that they're going to go through on their journey back to Egypt. And so if you'll read with me in Genesis chapter number 45, Verse number 16, it says, And the fame thereof was heard in Pharaoh's house, saying, Joseph's brethren are come, and it pleased Pharaoh well. And his servants, and uh, and his servants, and Pharaoh said unto Joseph, Say unto thy brethren, This do ye, laid your beasts, and go, get you unto the land of Canaan, and take your father and your household, and come unto me, and I will give you the good of the land of Egypt, and ye shall eat the fat of the land. Now thou art commanded, this do ye. Take you wagons out of the land of Egypt for, you, uh, for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Also regard not your stuff, for the good of all the land of Egypt is yours. And the children of Israel did so. And Joseph gave them wagons according to the commandment of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the way. To all of them he gave each man changes of raiment, but to Benjamin he gave three, uh, excuse me, 300 pieces of silver and five changes of raiment. See, remember we talked about Genesis, uh, what uh, took place or what transpired in Genesis 44, and so he's getting even with them and saying, hey, sorry, Benjamin, here's some silver and here's some extra change of clothes. Verse number 23, and to his father he sent after this manner ten asses laden with good things of Egypt and ten she asses laden with corn and bread and meat for his father by the way. So he sent his brethren away, and they departed, and he said unto them, See that ye fall not by the way. They went up out of Egypt and came into the land of Canaan unto Jacob their father, and told him, saying, Joseph is yet alive, and he is governor over the land of Egypt. And Jacob's heart fainted, for he believed them not. And they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said unto them. And when he saw the wagons which Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of Jacob their father Revived, And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is yet alive. I will go and see him before I die. Tonight, for just a few moments, in light of our text and our series through the life of Joseph, a story of God's sovereignty, I'd like to talk to you about this. We're going to look at Jacob again. We haven't looked at Jacob in a long time. Uh, week number two, we talked about Jacob a little bit, but really, we've not talked about Jacob. We've been talking about Joseph and his brothers, uh, but uh, there's been some things going on in the life of Jacob for the past 25 years, and so it's very important to understand, and I'll talk about this in just a moment, but it's very important to understand the severity of this journey from Canaan back to Egypt. It might seem insignificant. It might just seem like a minute detail, but this is very important. How important? The rest of the Old Testament depends on this journey. The rest of the Old Testament depends upon Jacob taking his family and taking these instructions that were given by his brothers, or excuse me, by his sons, and making this journey back to Egypt. So for just a moment, I'd like to talk to you about this one step at a time. One step at a time. It was a long journey, but all he needed to focus on was one step at a time. Let's say a word of prayer and we'll begin tonight. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness to us and your grace. We thank you for the opportunity tonight to come. Uh, Although there are a few of us here, Lord, thank you for your provision and your protection over those who were able to make it. I do pray that you be with, again, those who were not able to make it, Lord, and even those who are at home and listening right now, I pray that you just help them and speak to their hearts as you're going to speak to ours. Lord, I need you to speak to my heart. I need your power. I need you to fill me uh, with your power and empty me of myself. Lord, I pray that you would help us tonight this is a very important text 
And uh, Lord, if we're not careful, we'll gloss over it and we'll miss it. But this is important because really the rest of your plan and your purpose for the nation of Israel is dependent upon this journey back to Egypt. Lord, I pray that you'd help me, Lord, as I preach tonight, that you'd give me courage, that you'd give me strength, you'd give me power, give me wisdom, slow my speech. Lord, I pray that you'd be with me tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for reading with me. Amongst the most frequently asked questions that the average person will ask themselves or will be asked... Probably the most popular would be these. Why am I here? What is my purpose in life? How many of you have ever asked that question to yourself or to someone else before? Why am I here? What is the purpose of my life? I believe this. God has a purpose for every person, and his desire is to reveal that purpose through his word, through his work, and through his workmen. God has a purpose and an agenda and a plan for every single Christian that is here, every single non-Christian that is here, and I'd say the first step is to become a Christian, but nonetheless, God has a purpose and a plan for your life, and the way that he exploits and reveals that purpose is through his word, through the word of God, whether it is preached or whether it is read. Hey, there's power in that book. Aren't you thankful for the word of God and, and his revelation to man? God reveals his will for our lives through his word. He also reveals his will for our life through the works the works, the circumstances, and the happenings of day-to-day life. God will bring about situations and circumstances and maybe even difficulties in our lives that will point us to him and show us his intended will for our lives, but also through his workmen, through the man of God, and through other men of God who are influential in your life in this. They give you spiritual counsel, they give you guidance, and they give you good godly advice. God uses uh, his word, his works, and he also uses his workmen to exploit his will for our lives. And so it was with Joseph and his brothers. God desired to reveal his will for the 10 brothers of Joseph along with Benjamin later through his word in Genesis chapter number 37. Genesis chapter number 37, we already talked about that, but God reveals his will through the visions that he gave Joseph in that there's gonna come a day when Joseph is going to be exalted to a a position of high authority and the 11 brothers and even the father and all of the inhabitations of the the, uh, uh, family of Israel, or rather Jacob, are going to eventually bow before Joseph and he is going, they're going to worship Joseph, or they're going to bow before his feet, and they're going to give uh, reverence and honor and praise and uh, adoration to Joseph's position. He tried to reveal his will through his works. In Genesis chapter 39, all the way through Genesis 44, we've been, I mean, I feel like we have beat a dead horse. We've been talking about situation after situation in Joseph's life and in Joseph's brother's lives. God's brought forth situations in their lives to point them in the right direction. Now, thankfully for Joseph, he got the picture. He got the picture. He did not butt up against the, uh, the opposition that he was facing, but he realized God is using these situations. God is at work in my life through these obstacles to bring me to the position that he has for me. Not so with his brothers, right? They butted up against him. For 25 years, the callousness of their hearts, although they were regretful, they were still not repentant. Remember, we talked about that just a few weeks ago, but God wanted to use his work in the lives, uh, or excuse me, his work in the situation uh, and the circumstances of the lives of his brothers in the house of Jacob. And all throughout the journey of Joseph's brothers, there was Joseph, God's workman. There was Joseph. Joseph was a a very important part in the repentance process in the lives of Joseph's brothers. He pointed them time after time to uh, to God. In Genesis 37, it was Joseph. God used his his workmen through the vessel of Joseph to exploit his will in Genesis 37 and on through even in recent chapters that we've read. And that's just his brothers. What about Jacob? We're talking about Jacob tonight. Uh, God has used a series of circumstances in the life of Jacob to do the same thing. He has exploited his word all throughout the beginnings of Genesis. Uh, He's exploited his will through the works and the situations and the circumstances around Jacob's life and then also, obviously, through people in his life, through Joseph, through his brothers, and through several other people that were influential in Jacob's life. We haven't really talked about Jacob in great detail, but we kind of give Jacob a, a bad omen. We kind of are a little bit overly harsh on Jacob. Jacob is in the position that he's in, and really his family is in the position that he's in because of Jacob's decisions. Remember we talked about this and, and how he was supposed to go to Seir, but rather than going to Seir, he goes to Shechem, and that unfolded a series of unfortunate events in the house of Jacob. But in spite of all these obstacles in our story, 
God's will was eventually going to be realized in the life of Jacob. In spite of everything that we've read about, in spite of everything that we know about the past life of Jacob, he's eventually, remember he's sovereign, and because he's sovereign, he's gonna have his way. He's eventually going to make his will known to Jacob in the life of Jacob and his sons. Would you agree with this statement? Most people do not fear dying, but rather wasting their life. Most people don't fear death. I said most people, they don't fear the end of life, but rather they fear getting to the end of life and looking back and realizing that their life was a sham, their life was a waste. In the life of a Christian, listen to this, the only thing worse than failure is living a life of success outside of the will of the Father. Wow, what a statement. The only thing worse than failure is living a life of success outside of the will of the Father. That ought to be your biggest fear. When you look back at your life and you look at the things that you've accomplished, if it's outside of the will of the Father, you're in a dangerous place. That's not where you want to be. I'm not afraid of failure in my life. Matter of fact, I know that I will fail, have failed, and I'm gonna continue to fail. But as long as I am walking circumspectly to his will, as long as I do not have successes outside of the will of the Father, you're in a good place. That understanding and outlook on life begs the question, how can I know God's will? What, what outlook? I'm saying, when you look at life and you say, hey, if I am under the spout where the blessings are gonna come out, if I am directly under the will of the Father, it doesn't matter what succumbs me, doesn't matter what becomes me, I'm in a good place. If you have that understanding, you kind of have to ask the question, then how can I know God's will? Every Christian ought to ask that question. You should live on a day-to-day basis trying to achieve the will of your heavenly Father. One writer said this, to know God's will is the greatest knowledge. To discover God's will is the greatest discovery, but to do God's will is the greatest accomplishment. Now we've been following Jacob and his family really since Genesis chapter number 12. Because the story of Jacob and Joseph, for that matter, that, that, that doesn't begin with Jacob, but it actually begins in Genesis chapter number 12 with a man named Abraham. Now, I won't labor long on this, but in Abraham chapter number 12, we get what is called the Abrahamic covenant. And very simply, it's a lot more than this, but very simply it is this, Genesis 12 and verse number 2. And I will make of thee a great nation. That's how we remember. I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And he continues on, and God gives this revelation to Abraham, and he says, through your seed, every nation, every tribe, every tongue of the uh, earth is going to be blessed. That's the Abrahamic covenant. But did you know that there's more to it than just that? There's more to it than just the covenant that he gives that he's gonna bless Abraham. Look at this. Skip down to Genesis chapter number 15 and verse, verse number 13. And he said unto Abraham, or excuse me, and he said unto Abram, know of a surety that thy seed shall be a, look at this, stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them 400 years, and also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterwards shall they come out with great substance. In Genesis chapter number 15, God, uh, Genesis chapter number 12, God gives the Abrahamic covenant, but in Genesis chapter number 15, God foretells of the coming events that we haven't even read about here in Exodus, Leviticus, and then eventually Numbers, and then Deuteronomy and Joshua brings the nation of Israel. Remember, God brings up Moses, and, but God calls it. Everything that happens, everything that takes place for the rest of the New Testament, God said it was gonna happen in the 12th chapter of the first, or excuse me, yeah, the 12th chapter of the first book of the Bible. He said there's gonna come a time when the children, your seed, is going to be captive in a land that is not theirs. They're gonna be strangers in a land. They're gonna be in bondage in that land for 400 years. And after 400 years, don't worry, I've got it all figured out. I'm gonna raise up a man named Moses and he's going to lead the nation of Israel out of the, out of the uh, bondage and captivity and he's gonna re- lead them into the promised land. Joshua's gonna take them the rest of the way. That was all predicted by God the Father in Genesis 12, hundreds of years before it ever took place. So we see that the purpose and plan that played out in the lives of Jacob and Joseph didn't actually start with them, but it started with Abraham. Matter of fact, it doesn't end with them either. It doesn't end with Abraham, or excuse me, it doesn't end with Joseph, and it doesn't end with Jacob either. Uh, in just a few chapters, we're going to read of the death of Jacob. Genesis chapter number 50, we read about the death of uh, Joseph, but we've got the rest of the Old Testament where God is going to use uh, the seed of Abraham to bring forth his will. And God's gonna bring forth some great events and some great happenings in the lives of the nation of Israel all throughout the Old Testament. Man, I love the book of Joshua. We've been going through, or we went through the book of Joshua in our Sunday school series just a few weeks ago, but God's got it all figured out. He's got a big plan. 
So, so can you kind of wrap your mind around it? When God says in Genesis 15, they're gonna be strangers in a land that is not theirs, you know what land he's talking about? Egypt. He's talking about this journey that is going to start with Jacob being in Canaan, receiving the word from his uh, sons that his brother, or excuse me, his son, his, his beloved son is alive, and they're gonna make this journey back, and that is going to bring forth the plan of God in perfect, absolute detail. Can I ask you something by way of introduction? If God meticulously planned out the lives of millions of Jews over the course of hundreds of years, do you think he has the ability and the power to do that same thing in our day-to-day lives? Did you hear me? Would you agree that the details that were given before they ever happened in Genesis chapter number 15, it's, it's baffling to realize that it took place exactly as God had predicted? That's God, he's sovereign, he's in control, he's all-powerful, he's almighty. Would you think that because God has the ability and the power to be able to bring to pass uh, and control the destiny of millions of Jews, right now it's only 70. Acts chapter number seven tells us that some 70 people come out of Canaan and they enter into the land of Egypt and when they come out, there's millions of them. God had meticulously planned out the lives of millions of Israelites, or yeah, Israelites in the land of, of, of uh, Egypt and all throughout, uh, all throughout the Old Testament. Do you think maybe he might be able to control our day-to-day lives? as Christians, here's a follow-up question. Do we live like we believe that he can? Oh yeah, I agree with you, Lamar, absolutely. I agree that God has the power, he's almighty, he's able to control, but yet day to day, don't we struggle with giving God the little things? We struggle, we struggle with giving God the little decisions, let alone the big decisions, and remember we talked about this a few weeks ago, we are products of worry. We like to worry about everything and every, every situation that comes into our lives. You know what worry is? A sin, because it's saying, I know that God can, but I don't believe that he will. As we come to our text, we see that Joseph and his brothers have been reunited. Joseph has made the big reveal Now they know that the man that stands before them is actually their brother whom they thought was dead. For the past 25 years, they have lived, remember, with the regret and the guilt and the shame of what they did to their brother in Genesis 37. But now, this man that is before them, this man of high esteem and high authority, that's Joseph. Joseph has revealed himself. Remember, I am Joseph. And to their surprise, after 25 years have passed, Joseph is not in the position to hold the offenses of his brothers over their heads. Remember, he says, you sold me, but God sent me. He says it later in Genesis chapter number 50, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. He's not in the position to hold the offenses of man over their heads because he knew, my God's sovereign, my God's in control. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You sold me, God sent me. Joseph has forgiven his brothers. And God is going to bring the house of Jacob back together again as a family unit. So Joseph gives this commission. I won't labor long on this, but Joseph gives the commission and he tells his brothers, remember we talked about it last week, hey, you need to go tell my father he lives. Tell him I'm alive. Not only that, you need to tell him that I love. Tell him I love, but tell him I'm Lord, Lord over all the land of Egypt. Tell him I'm loaded. In case there's any doubt in their mind, in his mind, that I'm able to take care of the provisions and the needs of my father, tell him that I've got all the resources, but tell him, please, tell him that I'm longing. Tell him that I desire greatly to be in fellowship with him and my family once again. So the 11 brothers of Joseph arrive on the scene back in the land of Canaan, and right off the bat, they give the message that Joseph had given for them to give their father. Look at uh, Genesis chapter number 45 and verse 25. We'll read it again. And they went up out of Egypt and came unto the land of Canaan unto Jacob their father and told him, saying, Joseph is yet alive and he is governor over all the land of Egypt. And Jacob rejoiced. He was excited and he said, I will go and see my son before I die. No, not yet. Bible says that his heart fainted, for he believed them not. Wonder why? Wonder why? I mean, after all, his sons are, if anything, they're trustworthy. They've lived a life, a life of character and integrity up until this point. Surely you could say of the brothers of Joseph that uh, they were men of their word. Oh, come on. No wonder he did not believe them because they were liars. He didn't trust his eldest son, Reuben. Reuben is constantly trying to interject himself into situations. And what is Jacob constantly saying? No, stand aside. Because he doesn't trust Reuben. Why? We're going to learn about that in a couple of weeks because of all the immorality and and, and all the sin that was uh, prominent in the life of Reuben. And although Judah does turn his life around and is used by God, hey, Judah does not have a good track record. 
All the, and I, I believe that Jacob had this overwhelming sense of just maybe an inkling in his mind that uh, he doesn't know about what transpired in Genesis 37, but I think that he thought that they might have something to do with it. Because the Bible says that it was known. They hated him, they hated him more, they hated him yet the more. He did not trust his sons. So we laugh, but in all honesty, the apple does not fall far from the tree. And in the life of Jacob, we could say this, he lived a life of inconsistency. Now aren't you thankful that he turns his life around all throughout the Old Testament and New Testament, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, that means he must have done something right. But up until this point, we've seen that he has lived a life of emotion-based decisions. He's lived a life of making decisions based off of the sleeves of his emotions and saying, what is this going to best suit me today? If this decision, and, and when he's presented with the decision of whether or not to turn things around and go to Seir, what does he do? Hey, I'm gonna go to Shechem. He's an emotion-based person. He makes decisions based off of emotion. But I believe that Jacob's life experiences have brought him to this point where he's learned a valuable lesson. He doesn't have it all figured out yet, but he's learned a valuable lesson. And it is this, when I'm faced with the decisions of life, I need to ask this question, is God pushing or am I pulling? I've been burned one too many times, and he's looking at the situation and he's saying, hey, and I understand why he doesn't believe his, uh, his sons because of all the, 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 uh, the lying and the deception that had taken place, but he's looking at this decision and he's gotta ask the question, I've been burned so many times, I know that I probably should go this direction, but am I pushing or is God pulling this direction? Another way to say it would be this, is God in this? Is God leading? In this text, I'd like to go over just a few steps that God brings in the life of Jacob and the house of Israel to bring them from where they are to where he wants them to be. In an application, if you could ask this question, what is God's will for my life? How can I find it? There are six steps that we'll go over tonight very quickly, as quickly as I can. Six steps that God uses in Genesis chapter 45 and the beginning of Genesis 46 that are going to make the decision known and make it accessible. God has an agenda and, his, and a will for their lives. He's not just shaking it in front of their, their, their face like a carrot, never willing to give them what he wants for them. No, he wants them to achieve his will. By the way, he wants you and me as Christians to achieve his will. Here's some steps. Number one. The step of enlightenment. The step of enlightenment, we could say it this way. The step of information. Look at verse number nine of Genesis 45. It says, hey she, this is Joseph speaking, and go up to my father and say unto him, thus saith thy son Joseph, God hath made me Lord over all Egypt. Come down unto me, tarry not. And he gives him some more instructions later in the, in, in the text. So God gives these instructions through Joseph and to the 11 brothers, and eventually it's gonna make its way down the line to Jacob, enlightenment. That's how God spoke in these days. God spoke through enlightenment through his, his, his vessel. God spoke through a number of different vessels. God spoke through dreams in the life of Joseph. He spoke through visions. We see later in the Old Testament that God speaks through putting out a fleece at night. We see that God even speaks through Democrats, Balaam's donkey. God speaks through a number of different ways. They did not look in front of them and they did not have a good old Schofield 1611 leather-bound burgundy Bible. No, they had to get God's enlightenment and his revelation through other things because God had not completed his word yet. By the way, I need to say this. That's how God spoke then. That's not how he speaks now. We're gonna talk about how God speaks now, but uh, for those of you who are here, I just gotta, I gotta say, you gotta be careful about how you try to seek the Lord's will, putting out fleeces and trying to say, hey, I had a vision, pastor, and I believe that this is, hey, that's how God spoke in times past. That's not how God speaks anymore. God speaks through the revelation of his word. God enlightens Jacob through his precepts. Can I tell you something? God leads us in the same way today. He leads us generally in the same way through his precepts. Although they do not come through the form of those things we just spoke of, they do come through the form of the word of God, through your Bible, through enlightenment in his word. In the Bible, there are doctrines, there are precepts, and there are, there are um, uh, doctrines, precepts, and principles. A doctrine is simply this. The Bible says it in absolute detail. The Bible is, is, there's no way to get around it. You cannot swerve it. It is absolute. It says, this is what you should do. Thou shalt do this. Thou shalt not do this. It is definitive. It is absolute. That is a doctrine. 
A precept is where it's understood but maybe not specified. God says something in his word where you can kind of, anybody who can use deductive reasoning is gonna realize God is trying to say X, Y, Z. And so although it might not say thou shalt not do this or thou shalt do this, you kind of get the picture and you understand. The Bible's full of precepts. And then you have principles. You have principles that are laid out in the lives of characters like Joseph and David and uh, Matthew and the disciples and John and even Jesus himself. You'll look in and you'll see precepts in, in the testimony of someone's life circumstances where they will live a certain way and, and God brings forth his revelation and how they respond. As a reader, we can say, hey, that's how they responded. That's probably how I should respond. When it comes to doctrine, you don't need to pray about it. When it comes to doctrine, you don't need to pray about it. When you're seeking the Lord's will and God clearly lines out something in Scripture, there's no need to pray about it. You feel hyper-spiritualized whenever you say, hey, I need to pray about something. But you know what? When God clearly lines out something in Scripture, you don't need to pray about it. You just need to act in obedience. You need to absolutely act in obedience and say, hey, if God says it, doesn't matter if you believe it, that settles it. I ought to, I ought to live according to his will and his word. When God makes definitive statements, you better pay attention and you better listen. But what about things like precepts and principles? What about when the word of God is not so clear? What about when the word of God might say something in a general sense, but it doesn't necessarily say something specifically? Well, James chapter one and verse number five says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally and abradeth not, and it shall be given him. Same information, different source. Following the word of God when it is definite, following the spirit of God when it is not. Tomato, tomato, potato, potato, semantics. It's still God leading through his enlightenment. Can I tell you something? God will not lead you against the enlightenment found in his word. Did you hear me? God is not going to lead you in the way that he would have and contradict what his word says. That should go without saying. But you'd be dumbfounded at the, 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 the kind of responses, and no doubt pastor could give testimony, he won't, but he could give testimony about the dumbfounded ideas of people that will come to him and say, hey pastor, I believe that God, is, his will for my life is to divorce my wife. Okay, hold on a second. That's not what the word of God says. Or maybe they'll say, hey pastor, I'm gonna take this job, and, and I believe that God wants me to take this job, but I'm gonna have to be working um, three Sundays out of the month. When God has clearly lined out something in Scripture, he's not going to give you some sort of special revelation. When God clearly lines out something in Scripture, he's not then going to lead you in opposition to his word. God is not the author of confusion that way. Proverbs chapter 21 and verse number 30 says, There is no wisdom nor understanding nor counsel against the Lord. God will not lead you apart from his word. Proverbs 2 and verse number 3 Yea, if thou criest after knowledge and liftest, uh, excuse me, liftest up thy voice after understanding, if thou seekest her as silver and searchest for her as for hid treasure, then thou shalt understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord giveth wisdom out of his mouth cometh under, uh, knowledge and understanding. If we are faithful to dig, God will be faithful to direct. If we are faithful to search the scriptures, the Bible says, as silver and search for it as hid treasure, God will reveal his will for our lives. He will give you instruction. He is gonna give you knowledge and understanding if we're faithful to dig. God had a purpose for Jacob. <clears throat> he had steps in place for Jacob and his family to know that purpose. Step number one, enlightenment. Enlightenment through his word. Step number two, write this down. Endorsement. Endorsement. That word endorsement means this, an act of giving one's public approval or support to someone or something. God was going to publicly give his approval and support of these instructions that he is giving to the sons of Jacob to give to Jacob to go from Canaan to Egypt. He is going to publicly confirm, he's going to pub publicly endorse this agenda and this will that he has set before Jacob. And he uses a number of things to do that. Letter A, he uses people. He uses people. God endorses his agenda and his will for your life, for my life, and he endorsed it through Jacob's life, through people. I could, I could go on about many different people that God used, but how about let's just talk about Pharaoh. 
How about Pharaoh? Verse number 16, it says, in verse, uh, verse number 16 of Genesis 45, and the fame thereof was heard in Pharaoh's house, saying, Joseph, bre- uh, excuse me, Joseph's brethren are come, and it pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, say unto thy brethren, this do ye, lay your uh, beasts and go get you uh, unto the land of Canaan, and take your father and your households, and come unto me, and I will give you the goods of the land, and ye shall eat the fat of the land. And he goes on, and he gives instructions about all these things that he's going to provide for Jacob in his house, I'm in no way, shape, or form saying that Pharaoh was a godly person. But I will say this, Joseph respected him immensely. Joseph respected him immensely. Joseph looked at Pharaoh and his position and his counsel and his authority with great esteem, and he respected Pharaoh in that of a counselor in his life. And although I would not say that Pharaoh is a, counselor, a, a godly source of counsel, I will say, remember we read in Genesis, I believe it was chapter number 40 or, or 39 or 40, where he says, as, jo- as Joseph comes and translates these dreams, he says, what manner of man is this, that the Spirit of God is, capital G, referencing the God of Joseph. So he at least knew about God, but nonetheless, Joseph respected his position. Joseph tells Pharaoh of the instructions he's given to his brothers, and Pharaoh not only agrees, he goes above and beyond. Goes above and beyond and says, hey, absolutely, I agree. Hey, I'm gonna go take it up a notch, and I'm gonna give you all these different provisions, and we're gonna give them the best of the land, and we're gonna give them these provisions for their journey back to Egypt. God uses people to infirm, excuse me, confirm his, his endorsements. He uses people in the lives of Jacob, and he uses people in the lives of us today. When God gives us his will for our lives, he's gonna bring forth people that will confirm. You know what we call it? Wise counsel. Proverbs chapter one and verse number seven. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Can I tell you something? If you are looking at a major decision in your life and you do not wanna seek godly counsel, you're a fool. You're a fool. The Bible says it right there. If you reject godly counsel and you don't want to get counsel from anybody and you just want to make your own decisions, you're a fool. I'll say it this way, and my mother-in-law will get mad, uh, mad at me, but you're stupid. But I, I need to be careful. It's not just counsel. It's wise counsel. Maybe take it up a, a, a notch. Godly counsel would be good. Godly counsel is very important. You might look at someone and you might have respect for their position and their authority and so forth, but it's very important when you're making major decisions in life not to just seek wise counsel, but to seek godly wise counsel. Here's some questions that you should ask before seeking counsel from someone. When life presents you with a decision, and I'm talking about major decisions, I'm not talking about little minute decisions like where you're gonna go to eat tonight, everybody knows you should go to Chick-fil-A, that's wise counsel by the way, But no, I'm talking about major catastrophic decisions in life. Here's some questions that you should ask. There are seven of them. Number one, and most importantly, have I asked my pastor? Wait a second, Lamar. Why is that most important? Absolutely, according to the word of God, it's the most important counsel in your life aside from the Holy Spirit. That is how God has orchestrated the church is to function this way, that when God is leading you in a direction, the first person that you should call and contact is not your brother, it's not your sister, it's not anybody else, not one of your peers, it's your pastor. A lot of people have that mixed up. And I would say that I believe that God has divinely and intentionally orchestrated that formula, but so many people are afraid to get counsel from their pastor, whether from Pastor Farinella or any other pastor that they name pastor because they're afraid of what they're gonna say. That describes a large majority of people. They don't wanna ask their pastor because they know that their pastor is going to say in direct opposition to what they think they should do. Number one, have I already asked my pastor? Number two, are they more mature in the faith than I am? Are they more mature? Uh, Are are they farther along in in their Christian walk than I am? Now I understand, let me pause and just say that you can learn from anybody. How many of you have ever been convicted by something your child or your kid has said? God can use any instrument that he wants, whether they're more mature or less mature, but a good rule of thumb would be when you're seeking counsel about the major decisions of life, find someone that is more mature than you are in the faith. Number three, have they been through similar situations? Are they wise? Yes. Are they more mature than you are? But have they been through similar situations? I know this is very practical, but it's hard to get counsel from someone who's not been in your situation tied into that, number three and number four, regardless of the outcome, did they learn from it? Number three, have they been through a similar situation? Number four, regardless of the outcome of their situation, did they learn from it? 
Don't disqualify somebody from giving you godly counsel because their outcome was not what it should have been. Remember, we talked about this a few weeks ago. Wisdom comes through experience and through listening. When you can glean, uh, glean uh, uh, wisdom through someone else's experience, you are far more the wiser. And there's some people that have lived a life and in maybe they didn't respond how they ought to, but God has brought them and he has taught them and now they can look at similar situations and say, hey, this is not what I did. This is what you ought to do in this situation. And can I be honest? Excluding number one, but number two, number three, and number four, most, uh, I'll read them again, are they more mature than you are in the faith? Have they been through similar situations? Regardless of the outcome, did they learn from it? Those three things disqualify most of our friends and most of our peers. Did you hear me? Most of th- those three things I just mentioned, they disqualify those who you, you uh, tip your hat to. Uh, a very specific application would be this. Hey, young families, if we're trying to glean knowledge and understanding of how to raise our children, it'd probably be a good idea to ask someone who has children out of the house. This is, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm coming in, I'm, I'm low. I mean, this is very tangible, this is very practical stuff. But a lot of times when we're faced with a situation, the first person we go to is our friend or maybe someone who's a colleague or a peer. But really, if someone's more mature than you are, someone who's been through similar life situations that you're going through, and regardless of the outcome they've learned from it, it disqualifies most of our friends and most of our peers. Again, young marrieds, uh, I love our class. I think that it's wonderful. I think that it's a great opportunity for us to learn. And by the way, uh, you know, just because someone has experience doesn't mean that they uh, trump the word of God. The word of God doesn't matter if you have experience or not. It's clearly lined out in scripture. But I'm talking about when you're getting counsel. If we want to know how to raise our children, maybe we should ask some of these who are in here even tonight who have children who are grown and out of the house. If you want to know how to raise your child, don't come ask me. I'll try to give you a biblical answer, but my son's only two. Number five, do they have an ulterior motive? That's important. Do they have an ulterior motive? Some people have the best intentions, but they have an ulterior motive in that maybe they have dogs in the fight. You ever heard that expression before? You go seek counsel. Sometimes, this is, uh, just be honest, it's hard for me because I know I need to go seek pa- uh, counsel from the man of God, but he's my father-in-law. Uh, he is uh, my wife's father, and he's my, my son's uh, 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 grandfather. And so when it comes to making decisions, I- I've got it made for me because I can't go to him sometimes, can't go to my dad. So you know what I do? Go to some of you godly men right around here. Do they have an ulterior motive? Number six, this is important. Do they love me enough to speak the truth? hurts sometimes the truth bible says faithful are the wounds of a friend and sometimes you'll go to somebody and they'll tell you exactly what you want to hear they're not your friend you want to go somebody who's not afraid to get in your face and tell you when you're doing wrong even when it hurts number seven i added this one are they filled with the joy of the lord are they filled with the joy of the lord anybody doesn't matter who you are a matter of fact everybody just raise your hand right now Everybody just raise your hand. You're testifying to your ability to find problems because it's in everybody. It's instilled in every. We're professionals at finding problems. Anybody can find a problem. Not anybody can find a solution. And you, you want to be careful. I understand you don't want to necessarily, how many of you know of the eternal optimist who it doesn't matter what it is, everything is always great, 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 and sometimes things are not great. But at the same time, it, it, it would be good to seek counsel from somebody who looks at the situations that God gives you and says, man, isn't God good? Isn't God great? I know that it doesn't look positive, but man, God's gonna do a work if you respond to this way. But how many of you have sought counsel from a Debbie Downer? Who everything, every, everything in life is just, it's raining, it's pouring. God gives his endorsement through people. I need to hurry, let her be. God gives his endorsement through provisions. Look at verse 27. And they told him all the words of Joseph, which he said unto them. And when he saw the wagons which Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of Jacob their father revived. God endorses his purpose and his plan for the life of Jacob and for our lives, not just through people, but through his provisions. We could say it this way. God endorses through his resources. If God is going to make known his plan and his will for your life, you know what God is going to do? He's going to give you the resources necessary to accomplish what he wants you to accomplish. Where God leads, he feeds. Where God guides, he provides. God gives his endorsement through people, but he also gives his endorsement through the provisions that he set before us. 
God doesn't just set us in motion and set us on, course, on the course of life, but never give us the resources necessary to accomplish his will. Wouldn't that be just so mean of God? If we serve the kind of God who says, hey, I've got my will for your life, you're gonna go this direction, and we step out in faith, and then he doesn't give us the resources necessary and says, ha ha, made you look. God's not, God's, God's not, he's loving. He's gonna call us in a direction, but aren't you thankful that he's gonna give you the resources that you need to accomplish his will? But you know what? It's not always at the same time. Sometimes God does not give the resources for what you need tomorrow, today. That wouldn't be faith. Sometimes God just gives you enough resources to take care of your absolute right now. He's always faithful to do that. He is faithful if we are faithful to follow after the plan of God. He's faithful to give us what we need, but not always what we need for tomorrow until the moment comes. God is always faithful to give his provisions and give us his resources that are necessary to give us the endorsement that we're headed in the right direction. God gives his endorsement through people. God gives his endorsement through provisions. God had a purpose for Jacob. God had steps in place for Jacob and his family to know that purpose. Step number one, enlightenment through his word. Step number two, endorsement through people and endorsement through his provisions. Step number three, execution. Execution. Someone had to move in our text. Someone had to go. A very practical way to say it is someone had to have faith. Romans chapter number 14 and verse number 23, it says, for whatsoever is not of faith is what? Sin. So when it came to the life of Jacob and this decision that was facing him before, he knew what he needed to know, but he didn't know everything. I know that that's a profound statement, but listen again. He knew what he needed to know right now but he didn't know everything. The Bible says in verse number 21 of our text, Genesis 45, he gives these instructions, the Pharaoh gives these instructions, and here's what Israel's son said. Verse number 21, and the children of Israel did so. Skip down to verse number 28, these are the words of Jacob. And Israel said, it is enough. It is enough, Joseph my son is yet alive. Three important words, I will go. I will go and see him before I die. Question, did Jacob have the answers, all the answers right in front of him? No. Could there be problems on their journey to Egypt? Absolutely. Would they face uncertainty as Hebrews abiding in an Egyptian land? You bet it, mark it down. We're not gonna go over it, but in Genesis 46, Jacob comes, or Joseph comes to his brothers and he says, hey father, and he's telling his brothers, I want you to tell everybody that you are shepherds. And the reason that he did that is because shepherds were viewed kind of like gypsies. The Egyptians, they hated the shepherds. They hated the Hebrews, but just beneath that, what they hated just a little bit more was Hebrew shepherds. And that's what they were. And so he tells them, why, why is this important, Lamar? You know, for the next 400 years, after, uh, let, me, let me back up, uh, Jacob is, and Joseph are gonna pass from the scene, and so is Pharaoh. And there's a new Pharaoh that's gonna show up in town, and he's gonna look and say, what are these Jews doing dwelling in Goshen? And you know what begins? 400 years of captivity in the land of Egypt, exactly as God had said. So it was very important for them to understand that they were coming into this position, and they were gonna face this opposition for God's purpose and God's plan. At this point in the life of Jacob, he came to understand that God had enlightened him through his precepts, God had endorsed his plan through the people around him and the provisions before him, but now, although Jacob didn't have it all figured out, it's time to have faith, it's time to take a step. It is enough, I will go. God had a purpose for Jacob. He had steps in place for Jacob and his family to know that purpose. Step number one, enlightenment through his word. Step number two, endorsement. Endorsement through the people around him and the provisions before him. Step number three, execution. He had to take that step of faith. He had to be obedient to apply what he knew and go forward even though he didn't know what was before him. Step number four, encounter. Encounter. Encounter what? Problems. Opposition. Obstacles. Problems, issues, difficult circumstances. Again, Jacob is a Hebrew, and the, humanly speaking, there was no reason for them to make this journey south to Egypt. Matter of fact, there was all the more reason not to, what I just referenced. They viewed the, uh, the Hebrews, the Egyptian viewed the Hebrews as the scum of the earth, but to take it one step further, these were shepherds. These were Hebrew shepherds. And so I'm thinking, if I'm Jacob, there's all the more reason. I could make a list, uh, I mean, a, a, a list of two pages of why we shouldn't go to Egypt. They faced opposition. 
You want to know a good metric for knowing that you are exactly where God wants you to be? Problems. A good metric to rate of whether or not you're heading in the right direction, and if you're following circumspectly according to his will, a good metric to rate of whether or not you are doing exactly what God wants you to do is you are facing major problems. You're facing obstacles. Things are not going your way. The closer you get to the destination, the more difficult it becomes. Opposition is a good metric for us to measure whether or not we are walking according to God's will. Opposition shouldn't shake us. If anything, it should confirm that we are living out our divine purpose. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse number 12, it says, Yea, all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall live a life, a bowl full of cherries. No. Shall suffer persecution. Shall go through the gauntlet. Shall suffer difficult trials and circumstances in their life. All those that live godly in Christ Jesus are going to face obstacles and problems. Don't allow the problems and oppositions to deter you from doing the will of God. You need more convincing? Someone ought to preach a message on Joseph. Talk about opposition. Don't beat a dead horse, but man, all we've gone through is the oppositions that Joseph has faced from Genesis 37, from a 17-year-old boy all the way through the end, uh, to the end of his life. He's constantly facing opposition. You know what? If Joseph was under the persuasion that opposition meant that if he went through any kind of friction, that must mean that I'm not going according to the will of the Father, he would have gotten off the bus in Genesis 37. But he understood that with each step, God was confirming his will through opposition. He understood that as he got closer, he was accused of the attempted rape. And then he got closer and he was forgotten in prison. He got closer and all these different things were taking place in the life of Joseph. But you know what? He did not see his problems. He saw God is in control, God is sovereign. And because of the opposition, this must mean that I must be walking according to the will of the Father. God had a purpose for Jacob. He had steps in place for Jacob and his family to know this purpose. Step number one, enlightenment through his word. Step number two, endorsement through the people around him and the provisions before them. Step number three, execution. He had to take a step of faith. Step number four, encountering opposition. Step number five, I love this one, encouragement. Encouragement. God uses encouragement to confirm that his children are walking in his will. God uses encouragement in the life of Jacob to confirm that this, I'm in this. This is my will. Three things, quickly. Letter A, God uses his works. God uses his works in verse number 27 of Genesis 45. And they told him all the words of Joseph which he had said unto them. And when he saw the wagons which Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of Jacob their father revived. Jacob needed, again, some more convincing, and God brought forth these provisions that he sent in the form of these wagons, and I can just kind of picture it as Jacob looks outside of the, outside of the window and he sees all the wagons and all the provisions, his heart is revived. My son is yet alive. I will go and see him before I die. In other words, God brings forth these circumstances. God is at work in the life of Jacob to confirm and encourage the heart of Jacob. His heart was revived. In the life of a Christian, aren't you so thankful that God will bring forth situations and circumstances in your life that will confirm his will, but that will encourage you? Previous, I just talked about the opposition. I don't like that. But nonetheless, it's part of the process. But I'm so thankful that as I'm following the will of the Father and you're taking blows on every single side, God will bring forth situations in your life that will encourage you. I need that. You need that. We need encouragement. Uh, some people have the fatalistic lifestyle of thinking that the Christian life is just all lows, but God does bring forth encouragement from time to time, just when we need it most. God encourages Jacob through his works. Number two, God encourages Jacob through his words. Words. I'm not talking about his word. I'm talking about his words. Genesis 46, verse number one. And Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifice unto the God of his father Isaac. Here. And God spake unto Israel in a vision of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, and he said, here am I. And he said, I am God, the God of thy father. Fear not to go down into Egypt, for I will there, look at this, make of thee a great nation. Wow. Hey, Jacob, it's not just Abraham's covenant. It's my covenant to you. And God brings forth this revelation, I'll say it this way, in the New Testament, through his spirit. 
I'm not talking about the word. I'm not talking about his physical word. I'm talking about God's, present and God's presence and God's spirit. In the life of a Christian, aren't you so thankful? Again, as you're walking down the will of the Father, blows are coming from every end. God brings forth situations that will encourage you, but also you have the spirit of God dwelling inside of you, and he gives you that still, small voice that says, hey, just keep going. I'm right here beside you. Hey, just keep going. I, and he encourages us through his Holy Spirit. God encouraged Jacob through his works. God encouraged Jacob through his words. This one's important, letter C. God encouraged Jacob through Jacob's worship. Jacob's worship, in verse number one again of Genesis 46. And Israel, that's Jacob, took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices unto the God of his father Isaac. I preached the message a few months ago, and I talked about how Jacob, uh, we, we, we understand, and I talked about this just a moment ago, but Jacob lived a life of con- inconsistency, but one thing that is, could be said, a positive that could be said throughout the life of Jacob was this. He was an avid worshiper of God. He was good at it. He understood the necessity and the importance of it. And all throughout the life of Jacob, you find him doing what we call altar worship, where he's building an altar. He's building an altar, builds an altar at Peniel, builds an altar at at, uh, 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 Bethel, and then El Bethel. And all throughout his life, he's building altars, but there came a point when the altar worship stopped. Genesis 37. His 11 sons, or 10 sons rather, come in and they show him the coat of many colors and it's cut into pieces and it's covered. At At that time, he thought with the blood of his precious son. And at that point, I believe the worship stopped in the life of Jacob. And we don't see for 25 years Jacob building any altars. And although Jacob doesn't have it all together, whenever he sees those provisions and he realizes that his son is yet alive, again, he doesn't just make a 360 and have everything all figured out, but you know what? The first thing he does, worship. First thing that he does, I know I don't have it all figured out, but I know this one thing. God is working in my life and he's bringing these situations in my life to encourage me. I'm gonna encourage myself, I'm gonna encourage the Lord, and I'm going to build an altar and I'm gonna worship. God had a purpose for Jacob. He had steps in place for Jacob and his family to know that purpose. Step number one, enlightenment through his word. Enlightenment through his precepts. Step number two, endorsement. Endorsement through the people around him. Endorsement for, uh, for the provisions, uh, excuse me, through the provisions before him. Execution, had to take a step of faith. Number four, encountering opposition. Those difficult trials and those circumstances that he went through were a confirmation that, hey, this is the way that I want you to go. Number five, encouragement. Lastly, number six, experience. I could see you're shaking in your boots. You hate that word. Why? Because you're an independent Baptist, and independent Baptists hate the word experience. We're afraid of the word experience. We don't like experience. We want to uh, subdue emotion. We want to subdue experience. And, and I, I, I know I'm being a little bit harsh, but I mean, have you ever been to a church where you've been in a song service and it's just completely dead and they find pride in it? No one's raising a hand, no one's shouting, no one's uplifting. Uh, I think it was Wayne Hardy that said this profound statement. Emotions or experiences are greater and sweeter when they are the result of truth. And you know what? God wants you to have experiences in your life for his glory and his honor and his praise. He wants you to experience these emotions. He wants you to experience peace, which we'll talk about. He wants you to experience comfort. He wants you to experience joy. He wants you to experience uh, all these different things. God has a desire for you to experience, but it's got to follow in his process. Flip side, modern day Christian movement is all about experience, no truth, no substance. And the formula that God has put forth in the life uh, of Jacob and in the life of us is when we are following after his will, the end result is for us to experience something. Verse 28 of Genesis chapter number 45, it says, And Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is yet alive. I will go, and I will see him before I die. Quick question. Where was Joseph at this point? Egypt. Now think about it. I hear someone snoring. Wake up. Where is Joseph at this point? He's in Egypt. And to relate the point, from God's perspective, Joseph was where God wanted Jacob to be. Did you hear me? I'll say it again. From God's perspective, and he's looking down at the life of of, of Jacob, he's saying, here is Joseph. And Joseph in Egypt was where God wanted Jacob and his family to be. Did you understand what I just said? Old Testament picture of who? Jesus Christ. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says, draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. That's not just a verse, that's a two-step process. 
Did you hear me? It's a two-step process. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. In that, when we draw closer to God, then he will draw closer to us. Doesn't work the other way around. Now, God's promised never to leave us nor forsake us, but uh, sometimes we try to summons God and say, hey, I want you to be in my search, uh, situation. I want you to be in my, my, my uh, trial. I want you to be in this situation in my life. But we've made no advances towards him. The Bible says, draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. In order for Jacob to experience the presence of the one whom he loved, in order for Jacob to experience the protection of the one whom he loved, in order for Jacob to experience the provision and the presence of the one whom he loved, he had to leave where he was and go to where Joseph is. You know what he experienced when he did that? Once he applied these other steps that we talked about, you know what he experienced? Peace. Peace. Look at Genesis chapter 45. Our verse again, Joseph, my son, is yet alive. I will go and see him before I die. You know what that is? That's a peace. That's a peace in knowing I'm heading in the right direction. That's a peace that only someone who is walking according to the will of the Father can experience. Peace. Colossians 3 and verse number 15, it says, And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called in one body, and be ye thankful. When we follow after the path of God, and we follow after the path that God has set before us, there ought to be peace. You ought to experience peace. You, you know, again, there's opposition, and you, you experience that, and there's encouragement, you experience that, but an overwhelming sense of peace ought to come over you when you are walking according to the will of the Father. And those of you who have ever been in that situation, it's a wonderful peace. It's a wonderful position to be in. All the time, humanly speaking, you're looking at the things that are happening in your life, and humanly speaking, the world might say, hey, that's chaos, but not to the one who is standing in the center of God's will. They say, no, 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 this is an area of peace. This is exactly where you want to be. But listen, don't confuse peace with relief. Christian, don't confuse peace with relief. You know the difference? Relief is feeling the burdens of your circumstances lifted away. That's relief. Whereas peace is knowing that those burdens are still there, but that you don't have to bear them on your own. Don't substitute relief for peace, or peace for relief. Don't substitute the feeling of having your burdens removed if it's not God's will. Again, I'd rather be in the center of God's will with all the opposition in front of me than to be successful outside of the will of the Father. But modern day Christian movement, again, they have substituted peace for relief. They want relief. They want to preach a prosperity gospel where you can come and you can have all these burdens lifted and you can live a life that is totally easy and totally uh, no opposition. Hey, good metric, remember, is when you experience opposition, you're walking according to the Father. Don't substitute a life of relief for a life of peace or a life of peace for a life of relief. In closing, real quickly, we'll just review. When it, when it comes to finding God's purpose for your life, you only experience peace when God enlightened you through his precepts, God has endorsed his will through people and provisions. You've stepped out in faith and executed what God has brought before you. You've encountered opposition. And number five, God has encouraged you through his work, his words, and your worship. When you follow that process, when we're faithful to dig, God's gonna bring forth those steps. And if we're faithful to have that faith to step out, God's gonna bring forth the greatest experience that a Christian can experience, and that is the experience of knowing I have peace where I am with God. The only way that's gonna come to play, one step at a time. One step at a time. I know uh, it's almost like drinking from a fire hose. Man, that's so many things, one step at a time. I preached this a few weeks ago, but probably the first step would be Christ should have the preeminence. Christ should be important to you. He should be the most important thing in your life. But it's just one step at a time. This is not my illustration. This is someone else's illustration. But a recent study showed, I believe it was by Washington University, uh, not Washington State University or uh, Washington State, but over in Washington, D.C., recent study showed that I think it was 90% of millennials don't know how to read a roadmap. Guilty. I get a little overwhelmed. And uh, we, we, when, when we think of taking directions, um, what totally transformed uh, our travel process is the invention of a little thing called the GPS. How many of you have one right now on you? Raise your hand. You know the GPS was not invented recently. It was actually invented back in the 70s. 
It was invented by the government, and uh, I don't remember, I don't have it written down, but some three gentlemen. Uh, it's called the Global Positioning System, GPS. And they used it, and now it is so accessible that everybody has it. If you don't have it, you're weird. Everybody's got it. Everybody's got GPS. And the reason that um, uh, the GPS is so popular is because studies have shown that as, as human beings, not millennials, just human beings in general, we do a lot better with step-by-step than we do with the big picture. Did you hear me? Would you concur with that? How many of you are, are, you just work better that way when you're given instructions on what you need to do next rather than what you need to do five steps from now? Now right now, if I, 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 if I need to go somewhere, I say, hey, uh, I get on my phone and I, I type in the, uh, the address and it tells me step by step, but I don't bust out a roadmap because I, I get a little overwhelmed. I'm out of my element. Why? I don't like to see the big picture. And again, this is not my illustration, but someone once said that GPS stands for God's positioning system. And when it comes to life, we want to see the big picture. Man, I wish God would just show me. I wish God would either show me the end of this circumstance or maybe you're thinking on bigger picture. I wish God would just show me the purpose for my life. You can't handle it. You couldn't handle it. God knew that you couldn't handle it. God understood you do a lot better when he just gives you step-by-step process. God does not give us a roadmap, and he does not say, hey, this is what I'm going to accomplish in your life. You're going to take a turn here, and here's what's going to happen in this situation, and it's going to seem bleak, but don't worry, I'm going to figure it out. And and he does not do that. He just says, hey, be faithful to do what I need you to do today, one step at a time, one step at a time. For Jacob, he had to understand it is a one-step process, but we're going to learn for the rest of the New Testament that this decision was life-changing. But he could make that decision and have the peace in knowing that exactly where he's going is exactly where God wanted him to be. But it didn't come by applying everything at once, one step at a time. So when it comes to our life, when it comes to the situations of our life, you want to know God's will? One step. One step at a time. Be faithful to read the word of God. Look for the endorsements that God is going to give you through, his, uh, through the works around you and through the people around you and through the provisions that he gives. You need to have faith. You need to execute. If you're facing opposition, you're probably in a good place. I'm thankful God gives those moments of encouragement through his work, through his word, and through our worship. Be faithful to worship God, whether it's going good or it's not going good. And when you do that, you might not know your will, God's will for your life, but you'll know God's will for the now, one step at a time. Say a quick word of prayer, we'll stand and we'll go into our prayer time. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for for giving us your son and giving us your word and giving us these different things in our lives that point us back to you. And Lord, I, I know I don't speak 